Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's good to be with you. Uh, as uh, you just heard, my name is Matt Owens. I am, uh, I've been a pastor at uh, Christ the King in Somerville. I was the assistant pastor there for several years. Several years ago, I actually got to do the, the youth retreat uh, for Redeemer Conquered, uh, which was a, a blessing to me. I hope for those who went on it as well. And, uh, and recently, my family and I have moved to Quincy uh, on the South Shore to begin a new congregation uh, of Christ the King Church down there. And so uh, I'm thankful for this congregation's uh, prayers and encouragement uh, as, we, as we begin that new chapter. Uh, if you know people in Quincy, I'll, I'll put in a quick plug. Uh, I would love to be introduced. You can see me afterwards. We're uh, building contacts and uh, networking, meeting people, whether they're uh, Christians or not. We would love to, to make that connection. Uh, if so, you can, can see me afterwards, and we can talk about maybe getting us connected. That would be great. Um, our passage this morning uh, comes from the book of Joshua, uh, which I believe the uh, uh, it's... Joshua chapter 4, beginning at verse 19, and I believe I have the same Bible as your few Bibles. I believe that's page 180 and 181. I'm going to read Joshua 4, 19 through chapter 5, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that, that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeth Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. 
While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, unless your uh, Holy Spirit would come and speak, I speak in vain. And so uh, would you remember now your people? Would you remember uh, your promises to us? And would you come and uh, speak to our hearts that which uh, only you can do? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may know the uh, 2001 film Memento. It tells the story of a man named Leonard uh, who's searching for the the men who had uh, attacked him and killed his wife. But Leonard suffers from what is known as anterograde amnesia. That is, he can't create any new memories. He can remember his life uh, up to a certain point, up until the point uh, when he suffered this traumatic head injury. But every hour or so, all of his short-term memories are erased, and he starts over. And this is actually a a real but a very rare condition. And so in order to communicate to himself what he's learned, uh, he leaves for himself these mementos, uh, messages to his future self in the form of of notes or Polaroids or, or tattoos, information on finding his wife's killer, warnings of who to trust and who not to, so that when these, his newly formed memories are erased, he'll have something uh, to go on. And what we see throughout the pages of Scripture is that this is us. Our problem is usually not uh, that we don't know enough and need to learn more. It's more often that we forget that we are, in a sense, spiritual amnesiacs and need to remember, not just once, but we constantly forget, and therefore God calls us constantly to remember. Elie Wiesel, the uh, Jewish ethicist and Holocaust survivor, uh, wrote in a book on on memory that no command is as persistent uh, in the the Hebrew scriptures, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, as the command to remember. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord redeemed you. Remember Amalek, who wanted to annihilate you, but the Lord protected you and gave you rest from all your enemies. Remember the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. We've seen this uh, even so far in our worship, in our call to worship, and in singing from Psalm 44, the Lord's uh, consistent refrain to remember. And so we are to be like the guy from Memento, vigilant in our remembering. Right after the greatest uh, commandment is given in Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, is a command to remember the words of the Lord, to teach them diligently to your children, to talk of them when you uh, are sitting in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, to bind them as a sign on your hand and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates 
God calls his people to be constant and vigilant in our remembering. And Deuteronomy 6 uh, then continues with a message uh, for this particular people at this specific moment as they're entering into the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. As the Lord has miraculously brought his people across the Jordan River, now into the promised land, before they do anything else, they are to stop and take stock and take care lest they forget the Lord. To remember that it was the Lord their God who brought them all the way. And so the question that I want to consider uh, in our time today is, is how do we, who have also been delivered, live as the people that the Lord has set us free to be? And what we see in this passage is that we are to live by constant, vigilant remembering. And through the specific practices that the Lord instructs his people here, we are to remember three things. And this is my outline. Remember who the Lord is. Remember who you are. And remember what the Lord has done. So first, remember who the Lord is. The first act of remembrance that we see here at the end of chapter 4 uh, is the setting up of a memorial of 12 stones. Now in the previous passage, God had stopped the waters of the Jordan River from flowing uh, so that they could pass through on dry ground. And he instructed them then to pull 12 stones up from the bottom of the river. And what was the purpose of, of the, the pile of stones that they would make? We see in verse 21, the Lord said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. The purpose is to be a perpetual testimony, a constant reminder of the Lord's power, his care, his commitment to his people. It's an always present pointer to the great miracle done by their great God. And so this memorial enables future generations to, uh, in a sense, relive the crossing of the Jordan as if they were there themselves. Uh, it's been said that memorials are not for the dead, but for the living. The purpose of a memorial is uh, to be a sort of bridge, a union between past and present. And this is why uh, there's been in recent years a, a cry to tear down uh, certain memorials, Confederate memorials, um, because memorials speak. They tell a story with a purpose of, of capturing our hearts and imaginations. They influence how we see the world and our place in it. And so these stones speak to future generations that they might remember the Lord and be in awe of his power and his goodness to them as a people. Uh, when my wife Naomi and I were uh, dating and, and right, right about to be engaged, she came uh, home with me to, to Illinois, where I grew up, to the home of my parents uh, for Thanksgiving. And, and after uh, meeting much of my family for the first time and enjoying our Thanksgiving, 
Uh, we spent the day in Chicago. Uh, we had this romantic day ice skating at uh, Millennium Park and uh, eating Chicago-style pizza, very romantic. Um, and as we sat on the, the, at O'Hare Airport near the gate of our uh, return flight to come, come back to Boston, and we sat on the floor because the, uh, the gate was so crowded, um, we kind of shared this moment. She put her head on my shoulder. Um, we were feeling very in love. And I said, let's remember this moment forever. Uh, things may be difficult in the future, but we can always go back to this moment. Uh, at least that's what I'm told that I said. Um, because here's the twist in the story. Uh, that moment in which I said, let's remember this forever, I actually don't remember. Uh, about a year later, this came out, and I can tell you the story that, uh, because she's recounted you know, it for me several times, and I believe her that it happened, believe that I said that, but for some frustrating reason, I tend to not remember things like that. And so it's be kind of become this inside joke between us, you know, let's remember this moment forever. Um, and I didn't remember it, though it wasn't, it wasn't funny the first time that she discovered about a year later that I didn't remember. Now, if in that moment one of us had given the other something, I don't know what, but something to remember the moment by, and said, when you look at this object, I want you to remember this moment. And if we had placed that object on the dining room table as a perpetual reminder, uh, then maybe I wouldn't have forgotten. Uh, a similar thing happened to God's people as he sets, that he set free from Egypt by parting the waters of the Red Sea. It's a similar miracle to, to here at the Jordan. What did they do immediately after, once they were in the wilderness? What did the people do? Well, they very quickly forgot, and they grumbled. They grumbled against Moses and against the Lord. So now, this new generation has crossed the Jordan to enter the Promised Land, and to make sure that they remember, the Lord instructs for them to set up physical reminders. Future generations would need to know that, that these, the things told them in these stories, the things passed down, that they really happened, that it wasn't just a story. And so they could say, look at these stones, touch them. These are the very stones that the priests brought out of the Jordan River when the Lord dried it up and we entered into the Promised Land. These memorial stones are a physical reminder of a God who is faithful to his people and powerful on their behalf. And this reminder serves two purposes. We see in verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That's one. And that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So this memorial is a perpetual testament to God's sovereignty both to the nation's and to God's own people. Now years later, God would use another stone as a physical reminder of his faithfulness and power. A stone that one who was supposed to be dead would roll away from his tomb. Because God's faithfulness and power knows no bounds. He's stronger than death itself. When I was in seminary, I uh, waited tables at an Italian restaurant, and there was a man that uh, I worked with who I became friends with, and he was not a Christian, uh, and he told me this joke one time. Uh, he said, did you hear that Easter is canceled this year? And I said, what? 
And he said, yeah, they found the body. They found Jesus' body. And maybe I shouldn't have said this, but we had sort of a playful back and forth. And so I said, uh, well, the joke's on you because they haven't. You see, the empty tomb serves as a physical, historical witness to the reality of God's power, his care, and his commitment to his people. And beyond any uh, historical or archaeological arguments, there's an additional reminder. Because what we see throughout, uh, especially the book of Acts, but the entire New Testament, is that the most persuasive argument of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, is that he is empowering his followers to look like him, to do the things that he did. And as important as the historical evidence of the resurrection is, and there's a lot of very strong, compelling evidence for Jesus' uh, physical resurrection, still today the most compelling evidence for the watching world that Jesus Christ has conquered death is that by his Holy Spirit, he is living in and actively working through his people, his church. And so we are to the world and to one another, a physical reminder of the mighty power of God. For the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. So how do we live as a people that the Lord has set free? By constantly, vigilantly remembering who the Lord is. Second, remember who you are. The 12 memorial stones are fairly straightforward uh, but to understand why the Lord would command circumcision right here, uh, we need to consider the, the history and the meaning of this practice. For the people here, circumcision uh, would have brought to mind the covenant promises that the Lord made to Abraham, that he would bless his descendants and bless the whole world through his descendant. And so circumcision was the sign of the covenant, which is summed up uh, with this promise repeated throughout the story of Scripture, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And so circumcision is a, a living reminder engraved onto one's flesh that marked not only that individual but his entire household as belonging to God as part of his special covenant people. It was instituted by God to remind his people who they were, the Lord's people, and what they were ultimately called to be, a blessing to all the peoples of the world, a light to the nations. Now, it was intended as uh, an outward physical sign that pointed to an inward spiritual reality. But at various points throughout the story of the Bible, uh, God's people make too much of external circumcision, and it becomes, for some, a mark of superiority or a symbol of exclusion. And so God reminds his people in several places that what he's really after is not uh, just the, the outward external circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart, meaning an obedience that comes from the heart. The previous generation we see in verse 7, they were circumcised ex externally, but not in their hearts, despite all that the Lord had shown them, protecting them, rescuing them, from their slavery in Egypt by parting the waters of the Red Sea. Despite all of that, they forgot the Lord. In their unbelief and in their rebellion, they willfully forgot. And in their rebellion, God refuses to allow them to enter into the promised land. 
Uh, Martin Luther, several years after the Protestant Reformation, was once asked by uh, members of his congregation, Pastor Luther, why is it that you preach the gospel to us week after week, uh, implying certainly we get it and we're ready to move on to something else? And Luther's response was because week after week you forget it. Week after week, you walk out of here and live like a people who don't believe it. You see, in our fallen, sinful condition, how often we forget, or so our lives would would demonstrate, sometimes we willfully forget what God has done for us. And what the Lord demonstrates here by reinstituting the practice of circumcision for the new generation is that he is blotting out this stain of iniquity uh, of the past generation, that he would not let the past sins and failures define this new generation. He's demonstrating that his mercies are new every morning, that he would renew his covenant, that he would be their God, and they would be his people. Now, in the New Testament, the sign of of the covenant shifts from uh, circumcision to baptism. We see this in Colossians uh, 2.11. Paul describes Baptism is a circumcision made without hands. Baptism becomes that outward physical sign pointing to the inward spiritual reality that marks one as belonging to God's uh, special covenant family. I had the privilege um, at the congregation at Christ the King Somerville to do several baptisms uh, over the last year or so. It was People were saying there must be something in the water. There were all these babies, and uh, including my own son, Liam, I got to baptize. And, and what a beautiful picture of the gospel. Uh, because as I baptized him, it occurred to me um, that he, my son, will make a lot of decisions in his life and, and about who he wants to be, about what he'll do. But the beautiful thing is that before he can speak, His deepest, most fundamental identity as a child of God has already been given to him. He's been marked by grace. And so circumcision in this passage and baptism today are instituted that we might remember who we are. That we might remember that our deepest, most fundamental identity is that we belong to God as his children. And if that phrase, uh, remember who you are, uh, sounds kind of vaguely familiar. It's possible because um, I think one of the, the most popular movies when I was uh, growing up of my generation, a childhood movie, was the movie The Lion King. And it, it's prominently featured in that movie. And it's a movie that uh, most people don't think of as having uh, generally Christian themes. But if you think about it, uh, Simba is deceived into thinking that he no longer belongs in the community because of something that he's done. And so he runs away in shame and he hides. He believes that he can no longer be uh, who he's supposed to be. But what is it that eventually gets him over this shame and brings him back? It's It's not Nala. It's not his love interest. It's remembering who he is. Um, He meets this crazy baboon, Rafiki, uh, who tells him, uh, and he tells him, I don't even know who I am anymore. But Rafiki tells him, I know who you are. And how does he identify him? He says, you're Mufasa's boy. His identity, first and foremost, comes from whose he is. He is the son of his father. He eventually has this vision in which his father 
uh, Mufasa tells him, you've forgotten me because you've forgotten who you are. How can I go back, Simba asks. And his father tells him, remember who you are. Remember that you are my son. You see, we are instructed to remember who we are, whose we are, that we are children of the king. The Lord graciously calls his, his, his people his children, both in the Old Testament, Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And in the New Testament, we see the language of adoption into the covenant family through Christ. First uh, John 3.1, behold, what kind of love the Father has given that we might be called children of God. And so we are. And so we're called to remember our baptism, meaning we are to remember who we are by the way that we live. Like with circumcision, God is not after the outward and physical, but the inward spiritual reality of a new heart sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ out of which flows a new obedience. We see this message uh, throughout the Bible. Remember who you were. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord set you free. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 2.13, remember you were once far off, but you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists uh, several uh, characterizations of unrighteousness, sexual immorality, idolaters, greedy, slanderers. But then he reminds the Corinthian Christians, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, Paul doesn't say, such were some of you, but you cleaned yourself up. No, he says this washing justifying, sanctifying work is something that's been done to you. You have been sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. And so remember who you were and remember who you are now. You've been set free. Don't go back. Put off the old self and rather be who you are, not who you are by birth, by your nature, but be who you are by grace, by your new nature by your rebirth, by your new identity in Christ. That's what we see in baptism and circumcision before it. And remember how this has come to be. It hasn't come without a cost. And so the third point, remember what the Lord has done. In this final section, uh, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, two significant things that I want you to notice. Uh, first, they observe the Passover... Second, they eat, not manna, but they eat of the fruit of the promised land for the first time. Both demonstrate the Lord's provision. The Passover recalls the, the dramatic event in Exodus 12 when God provided for his people so that if they would uh, place the blood of an unblemished lamb over their, door, their do, doorpost, they would be protected from the judgment of God that was coming on Egypt for refusing to let his people go. And God would use that to free his people. And after they observed the Passover here in verse 11, we see on that very day they ate of the produce of the land. Verse 12, 
And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now the Lord has been providing this, this manna, this bread from heaven for years, but now they're in the promised land. And though they haven't tasted God's final victory yet, they can eat of the first fruits of the land. And we really find ourselves in the same position in the here and now. We're on the edge of the promised land, but we haven't yet tasted the fullness of the kingdom. Not yet. We've tasted the goodness of the first fruits of the gospel in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through which we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our final inheritance in Christ. But we still live uh, in this in-between, in a world of darkness and despair. And so uh, in this sermon, I, I certainly don't want you to hear me saying that we just need to remember all the good things that God has done and ignore or block out all the areas of disappointment and difficulty. Part of the good news of being God's children is that we are invited to bring our hurt and our disappointment, our sorrow to him. The Lord calls us to lament, even in the midst of our remembrance. And he calls us to remember, even as we lament. And to remember that though we suffer now, and we do, that he has done everything to bring us home to bring us into the promised land. Now, it's unclear whether uh, the people observed Passover as they wandered in the wilderness, but God instructs them, before they move any further into the land, that they should celebrate Passover here, as this was a feast that they were to annually celebrate what the Lord had, had done to set them free. And this Passover feast, of course, continues Uh, throughout the time of the Old Testament into the time of the New Testament, when on the night that Jesus would be betrayed, he presides over a Passover feast. And he keeps many of the traditional elements of the meal, uh, at least we assume because we're not told otherwise. There would have been uh, prayers and singing of psalms, praising God for his provision and deliverance. But at the close of the meal, he takes the leftover bread and distributes it among those present, as as would have been done at any Passover feast. But instead of saying, this is the bread of the Afikamen, that's what most scholars believe would would have happened in the first century, this is the bread which means the coming one, intended to celebrate the awaited Redeemer who was to come. Instead of saying that, Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the third and final cup. And instead of saying, as the tradition was, this cup is the cup of blessing, he says the familiar words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Jesus powerfully uses the imagery of the Passover meal to institute a new memorial meal, which was really pointing to him all along, and by which we remember what the Lord has done for us, that he is our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. We are protected and set free only by his blood poured out for us. 
A greater miracle than uh, the Passover or the crossing of the Jordan is this, Galatians 2.20, that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. When we had willfully forgotten the Lord, he faithfully remembered his covenant, that he would be our God and we would be his people no matter what the cost. What we see throughout the pages of Scripture is that our freedom, our belonging to God, does not rest primarily on our remembering God, but on his loving, gracious, sacrificial remembering of us. The thief on the cross uh, in Luke 23 probably did not realize what he was, that what he was asking of Jesus was consistent with the whole of the Scriptures. What did he ask Jesus? When you are in your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus responds, truly today you will be with me in paradise. Our salvation rests in our God remembering us. And this is put nowhere more profoundly than Isaiah chapter 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. How do we know that our God will never forget us? Because he says, behold, look at Christ on the cross. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Here we find the marks of his love for us, the memento by which we know that he will remember forever. And the resurrected Christ in his glorified body still bears those scars. There's, a, there's things that are mysterious about Jesus' resurrection body, but it's clear that he still has those nail print scars on his hands. He invites doubting Thomas to touch his wounds. These glorified scars remain eternally, not to remind God, but as a perpetual reminder for us of his power and his faithfulness. And yet at the same time, uh, the cross, Miroslav Volf calls a paradoxical monument to forgetting. Because by God remembering us at the cross, he commits to remember our sins no more. By the cross, he has cast our sin into the depths of the sea, Micah 7. He has removed our transgression as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. The cross is God's commitment to remember us, not according to our sins and failures, not according to our constant, willful forgetting, but to remember us through the blood of Christ so that when the Father looks at us, he remembers Christ's perfect righteousness and forgets our sin. And so, brothers and sisters, remember. Be constant and vigilant in your remembering. And to that end, Jesus institutes these living signs, these sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because we need visible, tangible reminders of what lies at the heart of our salvation, of what opened the way for us into the promised land, so that by the Holy Spirit working in our midst, we might receive the grace to remember. Will you pray with me?
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Lord, uh, in your grace, would you cause us to never forget uh, what you have done for us. May we never forget the cost of our salvation, the cost of our freedom. Lord, um, cause us to see your uh, sacrificial remembering of us. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.